Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to The C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. The Trump administration has given climate denial its biggest platform ever. We have in this last election crossed over into an extraordinarily hazardous moment where all the gains are at risk. But 10 years ago, mounting scientific evidence was nudging Republicans and Democrats to recognize climate as a concern. My son came to me in 04 and said, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. That can happen based on conservative principles. I think one of the core tenets of the Republican Party is control at the local level. So when we're talking about energy alternatives, we don't need federal energy initiatives. Republican Renegades on Climate, up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Moments after President Trump was inaugurated, the White House website removed all references to climate change. Days later, the president signed executive orders to approve the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. Republicans are also moving to open up oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve. These moves are all in line with Trump's campaign promises, so no surprises. But not all Republicans are on the same page as the new administration when it comes to climate. Those on the so-called eco-right say action is needed to promote clean energy and prevent climate disruption. So how do these Republican renegades find climate solutions in conservative principles? Joining Greg today are three of those renegades. Jeremy Carl is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. During the 2016 presidential campaign, he met with Florida Governor Jeb Bush, Senators Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, Ben Carson, and Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. John Hoffmeister is former president of Shell Oil Company. He's currently chairman of Aaron Energy, an oil and gas exploration company active in Africa. John is also a Climate One advisor and supporter. Bob Inglis is a former Republican congressman from South Carolina. He lost a primary election after he spoke up in favor of accepting climate science. He now heads the nonprofit organization Republican, with an E-N, dot org, which organizes conservatives interested in environmental conservation. Here's Greg talking about Republican strategies for dealing with climate change. Bob Inglis, let's begin in 2004. Your son is 18. You think Al Gore is cuckoo. And your 18-year-old son comes to you and says, hey, Dad. Yes, he was leading a new constituency. His mother agreed. His four sisters agreed. (laughs) They could change the locks on the doors. It's a very important constituency to respond to. Um, So... um, Politics, all politics is local. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, Greg, that was the first of a three-step metamorphosis. My, my uh, son told me, uh, you know, well, for six years in, I was in Congress, I said climate change was hooey. I didn't know anything about it except that Al Gore was for it. Um, and since I represented the reddest district in the reddest state in the nation, that was sufficient. 
Um, then I was out six years doing commercial real estate law again in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, ran for Congress after Jim DeMint left the seat to go to the Senate. Uh, my son came to me in '04 and said, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Um, and so um, uh, the, the second step in the metamorphosis is going to Antarctica and seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. Third step was really something of a spiritual awakening. Another science committee trip, Great Barrier Reef. Aussie climate scientists showing us coral bleaching. I could tell we shared the worldview. You know, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Scott was preaching the gospel. I could see it in his eyes, hear it in his voice. And later he told me about conservation changes he's making his life in order to love God and love people. And I got right inspired, uh, wanted to be like Scott, loving God, loving people, and came home and introduced the Raise Wages, Cut Carbon Act of 2009. Probably not a good idea to introduce a carbon tax in the midst of the Great Recession in the reddest district and the reddest state in the nation. But uh, So you were then lost a Tea Party primary, is that right? Lost to a Tea Party Oh, yeah, candidate. there is that. Um, yeah, that... Uh, <laughs> I was trying to avoid the unpleasantness of late. But, uh, yeah, that in 2010, uh, there's this guy named Trey Gowdy who got 71% of the vote in a Republican primary, and I got the other 29%. Uh, in a Republican runoff after 12 years in Congress, which is a rather spectacular faceplant, though, in that 4th District of South Carolina. John Hoffmeister, uh, I believe it was the late 1990s, uh, scientists had just concluded that human activity was warming uh, the atmosphere. Saudi Arabia, Venezuela had signed on to this uh, international climate science report, and the industry responded by forming the Global Climate Coalition, took a page from the tobacco playbook, Oil companies were part of this to, to push back. You were at Shell Oil at that time. What did you do about that group? I, I was actually at the parent headquarters in The Hague, and I had a global position. And we saw that Shell Oil had joined this group, Global Climate Coalition. And uh, we researched it to find a little bit about what it was doing, always worried about what our subsidiary in the U.S. was up to. <laughs> because sometimes the U.S. subsidiary was not exactly aligned with the global headquarters. And so as we dug into it, we found, indeed, this looked like a fishy organization that seemed to promote one thing but actually did another. And that is they seemed to be interested superficially in effects on climate, but in fact they were working to defeat any legislative effort to do anything that might amend how business is practiced and how industry operates. So we fundamentally called up, my boss and I, the CEO and I, called up the president of Shell Oil Company and said, you know what? You belong to that organization tomorrow, you're out of a job. You may be the president of Shell Oil today, but you won't be tomorrow because we will not have our corporate name associated with such a group. Well, he called and quit the group that night because uh, it was a phony group and we weren't going to be part of it. That was one of the reasons I joined Shell. I joined Shell in 97. And I joined to help transform the company and, to the extent I could, the industry, so that it could really adapt and change to what Rio stood for, to what Kyoto stood for, and, and subsequent to what Paris stood for last year, a year before last. Before we go to Jeremy Carl, I want to roll this clip of uh, the economist and and conservative icon Milton Friedman way back on the Phil Donahue show in 1979. So there's more of a case, for example, for uh, emission control than there is for airbags. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what's the best way to do it? And the best way to do it is not to have bureaucrats in Washington write rules and regulations saying that a car has to carry this, that, or the other. The best way to do it is to impose a tax on the amount of pollutants emitted by a car and make it in the self-interest of the car manufacturers and of the consumers to keep down the amount of pollution in that way. That's the economist Milton Friedman. Um, Jeremy Carl, he's an icon of free market principles in the, in the United States. You're at a free market uh, institution. Uh, what do you think about his case for taxing carbon pollution because it harms other people. He's saying that you shouldn't put, the government shouldn't require airbags because it's, you know, it's up to you if you want to hurt yourself. But you hurt other people, the government should intervene. Well, I think the, the ultimate question, and I've written a lot uh, 
both for academic and popular literature on, on this issue. Um, you know, I think one has to distinguish the theory from the practice. Um, and uh, in theory, there could be a lot to be said for particularly if, if you're cutting it with offsetting taxes elsewhere. So it's not about growing government or creating a fiscal drag, having carbon tax. Um, but the, the practical details, I think, frankly, are still a huge holdup. Uh, we saw this in, in Washington State. Actually, a friend of mine, Yaron Bauman, who's a, actually quite liberal Democrat, uh, was promoting this uh, revenue-neutral carbon tax uh, in Washington, and it failed because of environmentalist opposition. And I think that shows some of the practical difficulties and some of the reasons why conservatives, and I include myself here, are certainly, I think, practically a little bit skeptical of where this would go um, if we're doing this. Is it on top of a bunch of other rules and regulations that we've already got? Or are we getting rid of a bunch of subsidies? Are we getting rid of a bunch of rules and regulations and just saying, hey, like Milton Friedman says, the best thing is to price? If it were the latter, I think it would potentially have some significant appeal. My concern is in the practical sense, um, we don't wind up in that position. And I think uh, one of my more skeptical uh, friends in this this world who's actually uh, helping... Uh, the Trump transition team on energy, I won't, won't name him, but he sort of said the problem with even saying, if you're on the right, I'm for a carbon tax, if or but, is immediately everybody on the left ignores everything you're saying after that. And they say, oh, you're, you're for a carbon tax. Well, then, you know, if you won't do it in this situation, then you're Satan or something like that. And I think the, the concern is what goes after that if or but makes a big difference. And I'm skeptical that we're at a place right now, politically, with the left and right, where uh, we could get to a deal that would would be agreeable to both parties. John Hoffmeister, you were part of uh, a project that really redefined the politics of energy in this country. In in 2007, 2008, there was U.S. Climate Action uh, Partnership. It was for cap and trade. It was some of the biggest corporations in the country, you brought in Shell Oil, uh, Conoco came in, BP, Chevron, and Exxon stayed out, but it was industry and environmental groups, and they were ready to make a deal. Can we get back there? We had uh, major manufacturers, U.S. Steel, GE, think of almost anybody that is a big consumer of energy and who also pollutes. And uh, we had uh, all the major uh, utilities like uh, Exelon and uh, uh, a few others, NRG and a few others, and we had five environmental groups. That was the most amazing fact. We had NRDC, Friends of the Earth, a number of others who were all part and parcel. We were funded by the Rockefeller Foundation to try to actually get something done. Our mission was to put a legislative framework in front of the United States Congress by 2000 and after the 2008 election, and we achieved that. We put a legislative framework in front of the U.S. Congress in January 2009. But one of the problems was symbolism around the whole effort. The Republicans called it cap and tax. They didn't take the time to understand because it was anything but. Yes, prices would rise, but those prices were because of trading systems where buyers and sellers in the public marketplace would actually fund what was required to buy and sell the credits. And it was not going to be, it would be passed on to consumers in the sense of higher prices, just like milk prices go up or bread prices go up. Well, gasoline prices would go up too because of the effects of it. But it's not particularly a tax. There's no way you could trace it back to somebody's internal revenue form. And and so it was just that Republicans were immovable on the subject, even though the prior election, John McCain was supportive. And to John McCain's credit, he was supportive through the effort and, and wanted to see it win. But Harry Reid wouldn't touch the House bill in the Senate. The Senate, uh, the, the House bill passed by seven votes. And in the House of Representatives, where there was a supermajority of Democrats, that meant that several dozen Democrats voted against it. So when it came over to the Senate, Harry Reid said, I got senators running for the next election. We're not going to touch this. So it died. Jeremy Carl, uh, your uh, neighbor down the hall at the Hoover Institution for three years was uh, James Mattis, now the Secretary of Defense. He famously said uh, he led uh, some Marines in, in 2003 in Iraq, and he said famously, quote, that the military needed to be, quote, unleashed from the tether of fossil fuels, that the supply chain cost Marine lives. It's a security issue. 
Do you agree with him on the military dimensions? Uh, veterans are very much a core of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Speak to the national security aspects. Well, I, I mean, I think that the military has obviously done a lot in this area in the last, uh, under the last administration. Uh, some of it I thought was good. Some of it I thought was kind of uh, maybe not mission critical and, and, and kind of uh, putting a green patina where we didn't need to be. But I certainly agree with the general's comment, uh, especially concerning supply lines. And you actually saw a number of good marine deployments um, the XFOB, I'm forgetting the, this is an experimental forward operating base that the, the Marines operated that was essentially um, solar plus batteries that allowed you to reduce some of those supply lines and, and risks. And so certainly to the extent that you can decouple fuel um, at certain types of combat theater, I think it can certainly be very helpful. Uh, I'm not sure how much that ties into the broader questions of climate change and, and climate risk. Um, But I do think that certainly uh, there are elements of national security that come into play. We're hearing from climate renegades in the Republican Party at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. Welcome back to Climate One. We're talking to three Republican renegades on climate. Jeremy Carl, research fellow at the Hoover Institution. John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company and Bob Inglis, former Republican congressman from South Carolina. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. We're going to go to your audience questions, but I want to first roll something we have. Uh, We sent out a reporter to talk to a a couple. Um, This is a woman who ran for Congress in Monterey, 100 miles south of of San Francisco. Uh, This is Casey and Bob Lucius. Casey uh, Lucius ran for Congress uh, last year as a Republican, uh, and she lost. Let's hear what she has to say. I'm Casey Lucius, and I recently ran for Congress in California's 20th District, Monterey County, Santa Cruz County, and San Benito County as a Republican. And I'm Bob Lucius. I'm a retired Marine officer. I was a Republican for much of my life. More recently, uh, registered as an independent. We became vegetarians now about 12 years ago. So we actually have four cats. But if it were up to Bob, we would have like a whole, we would have chicken. Menagerie. I think it was about a year ago I I had written an op-ed in the local newspaper, the Monterey Herald, about um, the relationship between diet and uh, climate change and and greenhouse gas emissions. Subsequently, in the the campaign, was it about uh, five or six months later, suddenly it kind of rose up again and a lot of people were drawing attention to it, but not in a really a positive way. Someone in the agricultural industry locally had forwarded the op-ed to the Farm Bureau and all of the Farm Bureau members and basically said, you know, Casey Lucius isn't who she appears to be. She's not really conservative. She's not really Republican. Look at this. Her husband's an environmentalist who works for the Humane Society and don't trust her. This was one of our uh, flyers. I think one of the core tenets of the Republican Party is control at the local level. So when we're talking about energy alternatives, we don't need federal energy initiatives. We really need those things to happen at the state level and at the local level and probably most importantly at the private industry level. We need to free up private industry to be able to innovate. My hope is that people will be open-minded about Republicans but also that Republicans will be open-minded about all of these challenges that we face as a country. That's Casey Lucius, who ran for Congress uh, south of San Francisco as a Republican. Bob Inglis, your response to that? She's saying wants a party that's open and inclusive to, to ideas? I think that the, what she was describing there is, is a, the kind of accountability that is the basis of conservatism. Same thing on climate action, same thing you know, on uh, balancing the budget. People know about climate change. It's not that we need to educate them that much about climate change. It would be helpful. But mostly what it is is an affinity deficit. They're not people that look like Republicans that are supporting action on climate. And so if we have more of those, I mean, we've got to have some people... uh, What we say at republicen.org is... 
We'll sing this solo if we need to. We'll get a little duet going maybe out on the street. Uh, Eventually we get some brass out there on the street and a little band strikes up. At that point, politicians will run around out front to lead the parade where it's already going because politicians (laughs) typically follow, they don't lead. And so it is important to have information. I I agree with that. Obviously, I'm not discounting the value of science education and all that. That's important. But even more important at this juncture is just having us learn from people that we trust. And all of us learn from people we trust. We don't learn from people we don't trust. We're going to go to your audience questions. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Most of tonight's discussion is focused on the national agenda, but I was really struck by what Casey Lucius had to say about the opportunities for doing things at the local level. So I'd really appreciate hearing from all of you what strategies and tactics you would offer people who want to work on climate solutions very, very locally, whether at the county level or at the municipal level. Thanks. John Hoffmeister. I I think the age of national one-size-fits-all solutions is dead in the water. I couldn't agree more. I think at a local level, you're going to get pragmatism. You're going to get people who know what they can and cannot do, and you're going to experiment or you're going to take initiatives that may not have macro impact on the whole of society, But if you accumulate enough of the micro-impact initiatives, you're going to make a heck of a difference over time. Uh, And and I think we should be doing more of that at the municipal, the county, and the state level, uh, and and not count on the federal government, because I don't think the American people right now are in a mood to take a lot of federal government control. I think that's why we got the outcome we got. Next question. Welcome. Hi. um, I'd like to thank you guys as conservatives for coming out and talking to the bluest district in the bluest state about an issue that I find incredibly important. And we need more people, conservatives like you, willing to talk about this. And uh, one of the many troubling things I find with the Trump administration has been the assault on science and on climate and the um, way that there has been attacks on scientific integrity and silencing climate scientists. And, for example, we saw a gag order on the EPA and the USDA Twitter accounts, and the scientists told to not speak to the media. And this is a really disturbing trend for me if we want to move forward on fact-based policy. And I wanted your opinion on the best way to be able to move forward and how we can stay vigilant to continue to make policy it's moving in the right direction we'd like to take that one john hoffmeister i think that the activism of today is going to rival the activism of the late 60s because this issue is becoming serious enough in enough people's minds and i don't believe that the solution is at the federal government level but i think the activists are going to take an awful lot of convincing to see the kinds of initiatives go forward that unfortunately we still need We're going to have internal combustion engines in this country for the next 30, 40, 50 years. There's just no way around that, despite all the work we're going to do on electrification. And so it's going to be important to explain to people why you're doing what you're doing, how you're going to go about doing it, and do a whole lot of of engagement with the public if you have any hope of getting infrastructure projects through. Back to the 60s. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. I think we could probably use California and a few allied states, New York and some others, to actually be the landing place for the Energy Department and some others. And we've got technologies that should be getting unleashed and create a parallel, sort of a shadow economy. Um, And I wonder if you could tell us how we could achieve that in this context successfully. If the stuff we want to do is profitable enough, can we make a shadow economy, a parallel counterculture like in the 60s, happen? Jeremy Carl, Breakthrough Technologies. Yeah, well, I'm not going to endorse 60s counterculture, so <laughs> I have to disappoint you there. But I, I will say that I've always viewed this as primarily a technical problem and that, needs, that, that you're going to either solve it with technology or you're not going to solve it. Uh, you know, I think the notion that people are going to have dramatic lifestyle changes, for better or for worse, is just is not likely to happen. And so, therefore, I I do think that Silicon Valley can have a potentially huge role to play. And we've seen um, technologies get exaggerated in terms of how close they are to really being available in the media. I mean, and then you talk to people who actually implement them, and it turns out they're not nearly as close as you think. But having said all that, we have made tremendous progress in the last couple decades, certainly particularly in the last decade, in terms of bringing some of these technologies to market, uh, making them more mature, and, and I think 
I'm actually optimistic that we will get around this problem, and I think that we will ultimately not solve it just through technology, but I think that the technology is the absolutely necessary step, and I'm very optimistic that we are going to get there uh, with respect to that step. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking with Jeremy Carl, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company and current chairman of Aaron Energy, and Bob Inglis, former Republican congressman from South Carolina. Let us know what you think about these Republican renegades or about the program in general. Leave a comment or write a review on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. So how can members of the same political party have such contradictory views on climate? We turn now to a conversation about climate denial, the strategies generated by our minds to deny, repress, and basically avoid engaging with information that conflicts with our beliefs, worldview, or ideology. Experts say some denial is human, normal, and necessary. But what happens when this normal human process prevents us from acknowledging real threats? And what can we do when climate denial isn't just present in the halls of government, but actually controls the levers of power? Joining Greg are a scientist, a journalist, a psychologist, and an editorial cartoonist. Michael Mann is Distinguished Professor of Meteorology at Penn State University. He's co-author of The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. Renee Lertzman is a writer who focuses on the psychological aspects of climate and the environment. She's the author of Environmental Melancholia, Psychoanalytic Dimensions of Engagement. Christine Russell is a veteran science journalist. Her writing has appeared in the Columbia Journalism Review, Scientific American, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. She's also a senior fellow at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. And Tom Tolles is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist from The Washington Post and author of the Tom Tolles blog. He's also co-author of The Madhouse Effect. Here's our conversation about climate change denial. I want to begin by uh, playing a clip. We went out and found a climate denier. We figured we wouldn't have a whole lot of that perspective on stage in the audience today, so we wanted to be sure that that was heard. So we went out to a grocery (coughs) store in Richmond, California, and we found David Ehrlich, who is a um, chair of the Republican Party in Alameda County. Let's hear what David Ehrlich has to say. My name is David Ehrlich. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, California, but I currently live in um, San Leandro. I'm an electrician by trade, and I am the current uh, chairman of the Alameda County Republican Party. Low voltage. So this is only 12 volts going through here. They're being strapped up because the LEDs only use 12 volts. I'm not saying that there isn't climate change. There is climate change, because if you go with the definition of climate change, the climate has changed from this morning to this evening. Um, it depends on what scale you want to look at it. If we're looking at coming out of the ice age and now we're warming, that's where we're at. Um, so that would be a natural progression. I don't really believe there's 99% that of the scientists and what class of scientists. Most of the uh, meteorologists I know don't uh, subscribe to the uh, type of global warming that uh, we, we've been told we're involved in. Those are LEDs, these little ones that I put up. There's more LEDs going up. So the guy's going to spend a third less and get twice, twice as much lighting. We need to be working on alternative energies, period. Because not just not just because of any damage we can do to the climate or, or any damage we can do to the earth, change the climate. Because it's, it's uh, economically right, it's, it's advancement. Really, uh, what we're looking at is economics. Because we're looking at a financial disaster that will do, do us in quicker than any global warming at this point in time. That's David Ehrlich, electrician, who we talked to in Richmond, California. He's chair of the Alameda (coughs) County Republican Party. And we sent the journalist Andrew Stelzer out there to talk to him. Uh, Michael Mann, there's a lot in there. How do you respond to his views, which represent a lot of what we hear in the climate debate? How long do we have here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's it's easy to to vilify somebody like that. It would be easy for us to laugh at, uh, you know, some of the... uh, well, some of the ignorance that is betrayed um, in that segment. Um, but to me, 
he's an example of you know uh, someone who's really a victim. Uh, I, he's not the enemy. Um, he's a victim of a, a massive misinformation campaign that we're, we're fighting constantly when it comes to the science of climate change. And you you can hear that in the litany of talking points because he's essentially delivering standard sort of climate change contrarian climate change denial talking points. He got some of them mixed up, um, but I think. What's also important to understand, just in the logical progression, is that those talking points were really just a way to justify an ideological position. And in the end, you saw where he was coming from. There's a quote uh, that I love um, attributed to uh, James Inhofe, uh, a very well-known Senate climate change denier from Oklahoma. And uh, he once said something uh, to this effect. He said, I used to believe the science of climate change until I learned how much it would cost. And I, th- <laughs> I think that statement really betrays sort of the underlying mental process that's at work, and I'm sure <laughs> Renee can shed some additional light on that. So uh, I-, I think it's important to understand that in the end, this person comes out on the right side of the issue, and maybe there's some internal conflict. Maybe he, he ultimately understands that there is a problem here. He doesn't want to explicitly mention it because, you know, climate change is sort of, for the tribe that uh, he belongs to, it's um, ideologically inappropriate to to concede that climate change is real. But in his heart, he sort of knows that it is, and he knows the right thing is to move in the direction of clean energy, and he's actually helping in that effort. So... Renee Lertzman, uh, I mean, I made the question of whether the science is even relevant. He's installing LED lights, right? right. Who cares what he thinks about the science, right? Yeah. He's doing, he's installing clean energy. Science is complicated. It's abstract. Yeah. Do we focus too much on the science? And is it more emotional things that people respond to? Yeah, I mean, what I'm reminded of in seeing that clip and in Mike's comments is um, when we're confronted with information that brings up uh, conflict, with uh, our beliefs, our worldview, our, um, you know, ideology, whatever, um, our mind will actually generate incredible strategies to deny, repress, and basically avoid uh, our engagement with the situation and with the reality. That's just um, neurologically, you know, from a neuroscientific perspective, that's what our minds do. When conflict is introduced, our our neural networks are activated, and we actually do seek out uh, scenarios that help us stay in alignment with a worldview. Um, and I would add that I think the reason why the messages and the discourse have efficacy and land with people is precisely because there's a incredible difficulty in coming to terms with what's happening. So, you know, I'm also reminded in interviews I've done with Republicans around climate change, hardcore skeptics, that we see exactly what we're talking about and what Mike was mentioning is a lot of vacillation between a recognition and acknowledgement. Somehow you kind of know that they know deep down that something's up, but they can't allow themselves to go there because of my, you know, identity, affiliation. It doesn't feel safe or acceptable to do that. Our job is to try to make it more safe, to make it, to, to give one another permission to actually go there. Christine Russell, has the media done a good job doing that? Well, first of all, the media is a plural word, <laughs> and so I, I think uh, I, I've seen a, a number of nostalgia pieces recently. Remember the good old days of Walter Cronkite, where that's the way it is, and I think people, particularly in this post-election period, are really realizing that, again, a lot of the polarization and the kind of thoughts that we were hearing in that uh, view of the climate denier is because people are getting their information from so many different sources. And so one of our problems, if you're in mainstream news media, is getting people the information. And people are still getting a lot of information from television, but they're also getting it from selected sources of information that reinforce what they think to start with. And so we don't have that collective wisdom. And I think one of the challenges for science, for journalism, uh, for any field is how do you get a better, uh, more educated audience on some of these areas of science? And back to the point you made, I don't think people have to be scientists 
and looking at the conversation he was having as the electrician about his beliefs as if somehow he could sort out the science. And so uh, we, I think, in, in the news media in mainstream uh, journalism really have a challenge to try to reach out in a bigger pond and reach other people than uh, just uh, preaching to the converted. So I think we really have a challenge, and I think we're going to have a lot to cover in the coming months, that's for sure. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate denial. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Welcome back. Greg Dalton is talking about climate denial with Michael Mann, distinguished professor of meteorology at Penn State University, Renee Lertzman, a writer focused on the psychological aspects of climate and the environment, Christine Russell, veteran science journalist and senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and Tom Toll, Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist from the Washington Post. Here's Greg. I want to uh, show you another clip uh, in a recent episode of National Geographic's Climate Change Program, The Years of Living Dangerously. Jack Black talks to a psychiatrist, uh, Lisa Van Susteren. Jack Black is sitting on a beach, laying back, and there's a psychiatrist sitting in a chair with a a pencil and a pad next to him. Uh, So here's Jack Black talking about climate change. What we know is coming is sea level rise. Three feet, six feet, 12 feet. What is it that that keeps me from really believing or wrapping my head around these facts? Here's your premise that's wrong. You are thinking that our brains are only rational, and they're not. Our brains are wired in part to deny unpleasant emotions. There is a part of our brain which is highly rational, analyzes data, takes in information, And then there's the emotional part of the brain. And the emotional part of the brain is extremely powerful. And it feels more comfortable just to to shut down the scientific part of my brain and just enjoy the right now. That's Jack Black uh, in Years of Living Dangerously talking to the psychiatrist Lisa Van Susteren. Uh, Tom Tolles, humor gets to a deeper level, perhaps get to that emotional level. So how do you approach climate change and the cartoons that you've done in the book? Well, uh, the, the, the analogy, I mean, cartoonists think in visual terms, but the analogy is this is an asteroid coming at Earth, and, you know, everybody says, oh, well, what if an asteroid hits us someday? This is essentially the same thing. The science of the matter is very clear now. We can see that asteroid growing in the sky every day, and we're confronted with a news media that for some reason doesn't care to cover the story of the asteroid that's going to hit us, and they, when they do cover it, they cover it, uh, well, we're going to talk to a scientist that explains that the asteroid is this size, and when it hits the Earth in this place, it's going to do this amount of damage. You can measure and, and calculate this, and then we're going to talk to an electrician uh, who, works <laughs> with, who works for uh, the Republican Party and ask him if he thinks that the asteroid is, is there. Uh, or whether it's similar or different to other asteroids that may or may not have been there, or rumors of asteroids, or (laughs) mythological animals. Um, I mean, I I, I find it, it, I think it's an excellent place to start a discussion, but I think it's actually a little bit offensive that uh, this electrician is given even that much time. I mean, I just hope to God that he understands how to wire a house (laughs) better (laughs) than he understands what he was saying about his understanding, because it it didn't even add up to anything. I mean, if you wired a house the way he was talking, the whole thing would burn down in a day. And I would say, not only don't hire this guy to to install your, your wiring, I would say also don't join any political parties that this guy is associated with. But anyway, what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) Renee Lersman, in all fairness, that gentleman who spoke to uh, our reporter isn't here to defend himself, and it may get laughs, but is it right to villainize people like that? 
No, I think we're all in agreement on that point. I just want to um, follow on Tom's comment about the asteroid. So the difference between an asteroid and climate change is that an asteroid is external to us. And climate change, we're all living within the systems that are producing the issue. And that is what makes it fundamentally a profound psychological and social quandary and dilemma because we will, as humans, deny and defend till the bitter end if we feel that, um, look, you know, this is scary. This is maybe feels overwhelming. It, I don't want this to be true as well. So show some empathy. I mean, God knows I wish this wasn't true. But it is, and that's why we all, you know, so you move on from there. Mike Mann, I'd like to ask you about... Uh a real legitimate villain, perhaps. Uh, Frederick Seitz uh, was former president of the National Academy of Sciences, president of Rockefeller University, won many awards, and he, you write in your book, uh, The Madhouse Effect, is a founding figure in the art of modern-day science denialism. So tell us how such a distinguished figure kind of went to the dark side. Yeah, you know, when people say, how is it that, you know, somebody that smart cannot get it, cannot get the science of climate change. It's not a matter of intelligence. I think we have to recognize that. Um, there are ideological uh, you know, issues at work. In his case, um, he actually ended up receiving, I think, something like $70 million from uh, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco to found an institute uh, whose primary function would be to attack the science linking tobacco and human health. And there's a famous uh, saying uh, attributed to um, uh, uh, Upton Sinclair. Uh, it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. Um, and so I think we have to recognize that there is denialism that comes from exactly the place that Renee is describing. Uh, some of it comes from... Uh, you know, a, a self-interested <laughs> uh, sort of uh, origin as well. Um, and I think in some sense, that's the more challenging uh, denialism to access and maybe uh, convert and turn around uh, because it's so self-interested and it's so tied to ideology. I don't think any amount of um, information was going to convince uh, the president, a former president of the National Academy of Sciences, that he was wrong uh, about this science. Uh, I think he was absolutely convinced that he was right, and he was convinced that he was doing the right thing from a political standpoint. Um, I think that's a harder nut to crack. I think it's uh, part of what we face, the fact that people like the electrician that we're talking about, uh, as I said before, I see him as a victim of a campaign, a massive disinformation campaign. The same interests, some of the same talking heads who were working for the tobacco industry decades ago, denying the connection between tobacco and climate change, are today receiving money from fossil fuel interests to undermine the public's understanding and, and policymakers' understanding of uh, the science of climate change. Uh, and that is uh, the same argument today is being made actually by the same lead attorney uh, from the tobacco uh, wars is now making the, arg the argument that ExxonMobil, for example, may have engaged in exactly the same behavior. Renee Lertzman, I want to ask you about the power of personal influence, personal experience, and perhaps children getting to deniers as a way of changing people's minds mm. uh, that have not otherwise been changed by facts. Yes, there's enough um, evidence and research that supports the fact that when we have direct experience of issues, that influences our perceptions. But we want to be very careful that we don't go too far in that end of the spectrum. So going back to the point around our psychological challenges around engaging with these issues, we do have imaginations. We do have capacity to engage with our imagination. But having that direct visceral experience can support that, but it's not the full story. So Carrie Norgard's work, and I know Carrie has been on the stage as well talking about her research um, in Norway, her book Living in Denial, explores how people living in a village where snow was literally not there, um, people were still in profound denial. So even when things are right in front of us, waters are rising, homes in Calgary are being flooded, people can still absolutely 
be in denial of what is happening. Um, the point that you mentioned around the influence of children is also becoming more recognized as very powerful. So one organization, the Alliance for Climate Education, that I've been working with actually uh, is focusing on supporting young people to have more effective conversations with their parents. We're going to be studying that, doing research with some folks over at Stanford. So we will be able to see how the conversations that young people, especially teens, are having with their parents and how that might introduce some openings. Uh, and this also relates to the point around conversation, that when we're in social interactions with people we trust and care about, that is absolutely where we can start to see openings in you know, the fixation on the denial. Chris Russell. Well, no, I was going to say, um, in the smoking, uh, I covered a lot of the smoking wars and the financial influence, but also during that era, there were good studies showing that kids who had learned in school about smoking uh, came home and did have an impact on their parents, uh, and wisely so, given uh, secondhand smoke as it turned out to be. So I think this anecdotal approach, it's also used in journalism quite a bit, the anecdotal lead where you tell the story of what has happened to someone and it can go either way. And perhaps one of the stronger ways to get public interest in the seriousness of the issue is to have more stories coming from places where people are being impacted. And I think one of the surprises, in a way, is the evidence that is happening all around us as opposed to uh, in our... There'll be more to come, obviously. But uh, I think telling more stories about how it's impacting, and then bringing the science in to explain how that might be related or precursor and such has always been an effective way, I think, giving people, and it doesn't happen in journalism, uh, it's always a challenge as a science journalist, figure out how to get the science out in a kind of easy dose and not cough medicine, so... Uh, we did a poll on Twitter. We had 850 votes, and we asked the question, what do you think about human-caused climate change? 61% said it's real and will impact me. 11% is, said it's real and won't impact me. 12% said it's natural, and 16% uh, said it's a hoax. <coughs> so I want to get to this, it's real and won't <coughs> impact me, because, um, Renee Lurzman, that's a form of climate denial light. It's, we, we're talking here about denial, which is it's not happening, and we hear about that. But there's another thing, which is it's happening, but it's going to hurt people far away or polar bears or people on Pacific Islands. It's not going to affect me on a hill uh, somewhere where I'll be safe from sea level rise. Right. I call this the kinder, gentler climate change denial. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, Mike's written about the kind of these variations as well. So there's some nice research out there around um, these variations. Um, you can think of it as rationalization, um, distantiation where you're actually putting space or distance between yourself and the issue. These are all very well-known documented strategies that we engage in that, as you say, are not cut and dry denial. There's also disavowal where you're you're not denying something exists, but you're choosing to not actually live in that awareness. You're choosing to go on business as usual. It's not the same as saying it doesn't exist. So these, again, are sort of well-known, well-crafted strategies. And, and as Kari Norgard has written about in Mike, in your book, that we need one another to actually corroborate, to make it real. So it's not just me as an individual going around having this thought. I need people in my life, and I need social interactions who can mirror and reflect that back. I want to ask uh, Tom Tolles about one of his cartoons. Uh, it's in the book, uh, Madhouse Effect, in the Washington Post. It's a villain in court uh, testifying. It's this big, ugly monster, and he's in court. And he says, maybe that storm was one of mine. Maybe it wasn't. You can't prove a thing, so you'll just have to let me go. Yeah, I mean, one of the games, there have been many games played in the debate over climate change, and one of the games that the <coughs> denial community has played is they take a, a fact from the science side that you cannot specifically attribute any one event to climate change. It could have been a naturally, it could have happened anyway. 
which is true. And it's just a cynical game of tangle-footing your opposition with their own honesty. So they, they always deploy that against the news media in particular. And I've dealt with this in my cartoons because the cartoonists, I'm trying to convey visually and viscerally what climate change will be like. And you see a, a freak storm, a catastrophic flood, a fire. You want to take all those visuals and, and deploy those and say, okay, maybe even if this one wasn't connected to, can't be proven to be connected to climate change data, this is what the future is going to be like. But it's, you have to do that, that maneuver, that even if, then also kind of thing, which is, it's a trickier argument to make. So the cartoon was directed at explaining the specific tactic of trying to split those two things apart. I just, I, before the, the conversation gets away from this, and I know I'm stepping outside the question you've asked, I think a lot of the progress that we've been making, both in terms of public education, both in terms of international policy, national policy under the Obama administration, we have in this last election crossed over into an extraordinarily hazardous moment where all the gains are at risk. I don't think they're lost, but politically this is an extraordinarily hazardous time that I don't think we've even yet realized. We are out of screwing around time. You've got to solve the psychological problem to solve the political problem, but the political problem has just leapt way ahead of the psychology here. We are right at the edge of the precipice right now, and we're teetering. Uh, Renee Lursman, uh, Tom Tolles has painted a very dark picture. What do people do with that fear? That, that's sort of a dark, is that a, a mobilizing place? People, well, people know that, but they don't know what to do with it or go, where to go with it. Exactly. I mean, it's a terrifying paralyzing, potentially paralyzing place. Trauma does tend to fight, flight, or freeze us, but we have to be exceptionally mindful of the context in which we're learning and taking in the information. So when we're on our own and we're isolated and we're dealing with all of this, of course it's overwhelming and of course it is paralyzing potentially, but when we look at the context of being with others and being able to process what we're learning, things rapidly change. We actually, as humans, have incredible capacity to become very creative and have ingenuity, but we need to think about the context in which we're coming to terms with the issues. Greg Dalton has been talking about climate denial with Renee Lertzman, an author and speaker who focuses on the psychological aspects of climate and the environment. Tom Tolles, Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist from the Washington Post. Christine Russell, veteran science journalist. And Michael Mann, distinguished professor of meteorology at Penn State University. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Devin Strolovich, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.